Right now, my biggest concern is that people won't be able to vote. There are so many reasons why just the, the simple act of voting has become so fraught. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Voter suppression has emerged as a key issue that may affect the outcome of the November presidential election. Will you actually get to vote in November, and will your vote be counted? Sue Halpern has been wrestling with these and other questions as a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine, covering election security. She is also a scholar-in-residence at Middlebury College and the best-selling author of seven books. She lives in Ripton, Vermont. Sue Halpern, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. How worried are you about the November 3rd election? Um, what scale are we working on? Can we say 11? Um, <laughs> um, very worried. I mean, there's so many things to worry about. I mean, it's very, very hard not to be worried. And, um, you know, let me count the ways. There are just, just too many. So let's start with number one. What's your biggest concern? Um, right now, my biggest concern is that people won't be able to vote. Um, there are all sorts of reasons why that might be true. Um, in some places, they will have tried to vote by mail, and the Postal Service will have slowed down the mail to the extent that their ballot will not have been received in time. Um, a lot of people are voting by mail for the first time, and they really don't read the instructions very, very carefully, and so maybe they've made a mistake. They haven't signed their ballot properly, but then there's a whole issue around ballot signatures and whether or not those signatures will be accepted, whether they look like the signature that someone made, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago when they were getting their uh, motor vehicles records, you know. So those things are happening. Um, there are some more, you know, insidious um, voter suppression efforts under the way, underway. Um, and then, you know, we've got these long lines. We've got places where polls have been closed. We have Donald Trump and his minions talking about having, um, you know, armed people at polls to make sure things are going well on, on their behalf. I mean, there are so many reasons why just the, the simple act of voting has become so fraught. So... Of these, which has the potential to have the biggest, to actually change outcomes in swing states? Well, that's a really good question, and I'm not sure anyone knows exactly the answer to that. But, you know, one of the things that we saw was um, the last time around, we know that when the Russians were uh, poking around in our uh, election systems, they were very interested in our voter registration databases. So if you change things in a voter registration database and someone shows up at the polls and maybe they've been tossed off or maybe someone has changed a letter in their name or something about their address doesn't match, you know, the address that they are showing up with, um, and then they don't get to vote, um, that changes the outcome of the election without it even looking like hacking. Um, and that's a, that worries me um, because in those states that actually swung the election last time, the margins that Trump won by are very, very small. Um, so it doesn't really take a lot 
to mess things up um, if, if all you're really trying to do is win the electoral college. So that, that's really worrisome to me. How concerned are you about the question, the whole idea that the uh, election itself, there could be some emergency rules invoked because of the pandemic, that uh, there might be some, you know, wholesale national suppression of the vote? Yeah, I mean, I, I try not to go down that road because um, it's so dire. Um, I think that if that were to happen, there, I, I just think there would be so much unrest. Um, it seems like a very, very uh, dangerous place for the country to go. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past this administration to try to do something like that, but I think it's it's so dangerous that even their some of their more rabid supporters, the Mitch McConnells and Lindsey Graham's of the world and, and Marco Rubio's, I don't think they'd go there. I really don't. Hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the reporting you've been doing in the New Yorker. Um, your uh, most recent piece is about voter registration and that you cite a remarkable statistic in there uh, that Rock the Vote, which has been registering voters for the last three decades, has fielded 183,000 applications just in June. And by contrast, four years ago in the same time, only 35,000 people used, uh, registered through Rock the Vote. Um, And then you note another group, the Voter Participation Center, saw its online voter registrations increase 250% during the Black Lives Matter protests. So talk about what we're seeing with voter registration. And you also note that this began by voter registration kind of falling off the table in March uh, when the pandemic first hit. So where are we at now? So that that's right. I mean, the pandemic has been very bad for voter registration. Um, for the sort of obvious reasons that uh, like uh, DMVs are closed and that's a place where a lot of people do their registrations, clerk's offices are closed. Um, And a lot of voter registration takes place in person. So on college campuses where organizations are trying to get first time voters, um, you know, just, you know, at at some, in front of some store, you know, at a county fair, whatever it is, all the things that have, have been closed um, that make in-person voter registration challenging. Um, and so it did fall off the table. Um, but what happened in June was that there were the Black Lives Matter protests and and a certain number of people understood that that would be a great opportunity to um, to get people to sign up to vote. Um, and, and not just there, but to put out that message that, you know, if you care about racial injustice, if you care about the way this country is going, then then go out and register to vote. So there, there was a lot of messaging that was going on at that point. And I think people were really so keyed in to the political stakes. And, you know, typically it's right now, it's like September, October, when the biggest voter registration drives are taking place, but it looks like the biggest ones are going to have happened in that June period. Hmm. Now, it's not just progressive activists who are registering to vote. Republicans have their own voter reg drives going on. 
So what do we know now about who's registered more new voters? So that's actually a really, really hard question to answer. Um, and the reason why it's a hard question to answer is that, believe it or not, um, something like 60% of people who register to vote who have the opportunity to say whether or not they want to affiliate with a party don't. So most people will register as, as either unaffiliated or an independent. Um, and then a lot of states don't actually um, require anyone to designate whether or not they want to be affiliated with a party. So we don't really know what it means. Um, you know, when we, when we look at the numbers, I mean, we can see like how many Democrats and how many Republicans and that sort of thing, but it's not necessarily all that telling and all that meaningful. So we don't know. Um, from some of the people that I've been talking to, it really, it sort of depends um, on the state. Um, and it, it's, even they who do voter registration have a kind of a, a challenging time to figure that out. But another way to look at it is not to look at party affiliation, but to look at who is actually registering. So are they young people? Young people tend to be Democrats, tend to be more progressive. Are they um, people of color? Um, in most instances, not all, obviously, um, you know, this is not a monolithic block, but, but in general, um, the assumption is made that most of those voters are more progressive um, and not Republicans. So it really depends on how you're looking at the electorate and, and who these people are in terms of um, demographics and um, other identities. And, and that way, um, you can sort of make some assumptions about who's registering to vote. I think one of the things that's really interesting right now is that the, the youth vote um, getting young people to register this time around is, is, is very successful. Um, historically, young people don't vote. Um, I think we're going to see something very different this time. So uh, let's talk about that a bit. That has been um, just a head-scratching phenomenon, the incredibly low level of voting by young people. And very little seems to change that. So what could change it or what is changing that? And, and you know, what has it been? I mean, as I recall, it's something like 25%. It's, it's very low of eligible young voters actually vote. Um, yeah. So, so what's making a difference now? Um, there are some really very active voter registration organizations that are focused exclusively on signing up young people. Um, and, uh, and, and, but, but that, and that in and of itself is good and interesting, but the fact is that the conversion rate between signing up and actually voting is also very small. And so one of the things that's going on right now is that these organizations are gathering the kinds of data that um, and, and under other circumstances, I might be writing about, you know, surveillance is another thing that I write about, but they have really good data in which they are getting in, back in touch with people who have registered 
and telling them like, okay, here's here, you know, very specifically, here's where you need to go. If you're going to go on election day, here's what you need to do. If you want an absentee ballot and then following up and following up and following up literally until election day and calling them up and saying, or sending them a text message and saying, okay, go to vote. You know, here's where you need to go. And then getting data back from them. And so some of these organizations, um, very particularly uh, one called Next Gen America, um, are getting a conversion rate of about 80 or 81%, which is very, very high. Um, Rock the Vote is getting a very high um, conversion rate, as is the Voter Participation Center. So they're using the, the, the data that they're getting and using you know, a lot of the um, technology that we have at our disposal to do the next steps to get people from signing up to vote to actually going to vote. Um, you mentioned surveillance, and, uh, and, and I should just uh, pause and say that if you're just joining us, you're listening to the Vermont Conversation, and we're talking with Sue Halpern. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker, and she's been writing quite a lot uh, this year in particular on election security, voter suppression. She's also a scholar in residence at Middlebury College. So a recent piece that you wrote talked about um, the Trump voter app, the Trump campaign app. Talk about what happened after you downloaded the Trump app on a burner phone. Yeah, this was really kind of interesting. So I, I knew I didn't want to put it on my phone um, because I knew that then I would for for sure get a lot of you know messages that that wouldn't have been so terrible um but the but the app um is um a really active uh surveillance tool um on the part of the campaign um and they're very upfront about it um so i knew that and i didn't want to put it on my phone um but the weird thing that happened was about 2 days after i put it on this burner phone um, which I had purchased with a credit card, so, you know, my name, um, and I had used a an email address that I only used to sort of conduct commerce, so not my regular email address. Suddenly, two days after I downloaded the um, app onto this phone, I started getting emails from the campaign on the email address that I had used to buy the phone. Um, and, you know, I got the first one two days later. It was from Donald Trump welcoming me to the team. Um, and I was just kind of a little freaked out because uh, I bought the burner phones, so I wouldn't really be dealing with the campaign in real time in my real life. Um, and um, it became very clear that somewhere along the line they were buying, um, you know, commercial data from... Uh, from a data broker, which we knew, you know, all campaigns do that. Um, but they were, you know, right on top of it. And they knew that I'd purchased this phone and um, they knew how to find me. So let, let's just sort of uh, walk that through. So it means that they were able to contact you through the app, through your credit card. And you write that the app also if on your regular phone where you have your list of contacts also has a way of harvesting all of your contacts information. Yeah. So again, I mean, they are, as I say, they're very upfront about it. Um, if in order to get onto the app, you have to give them your cell phone number. I mean, that's just a given. 
Um, once they have your cell phone number, they actually have a lot of information about you just off the bat. Um, but if you look at the permissions that are required to use the app, which rather than you opting into those permissions, you, you have to opt out of some of them. And if you opt out of them, you don't get to use the app. So most people obviously don't. Um, the permissions just say, you know, we, we have access to your microphone. We have access to your camera. We have access to the storage on your phone. We have access to your contacts. Um, you're basically giving them access to most of your life. Um, and, you know, for someone who is a Trump supporter, that's not a big deal, probably. Um, you know, that's, that is the sort of the price you pay. For someone who's just kind of curious and kind of wants to see what it's all about, um, it could be somewhat more problematic. And, and the other thing is, you know, once that information is out there in the world of, of data, um, it's probably not going to just stay with the Trump campaign. It's probably going to be monetized by other people. So how does this differ from, say, the Biden campaign app? The Biden campaign app is, in some sense, a very sad little thing. Um, it, it's very sweet. Um, the Biden app asks for very little of, uh, like, the permissions are, there are like two or three of them. They're very, very minimal. Um, the Biden app is essentially being used as what's called um, a relational organizing tool. And what that means is that um, it's for you, the user, um, to get the information and then get yourself in contact with the people in your um, address book as you so fit. Like you can give the campaign some access, but it's they're not going to get in touch with those people. They get back to you. And it, let's just say you have like five friends in Michigan and six friends in Wisconsin and, you know, five friends in Pennsylvania and these swing states, they might get back to you and say, hey, you know, you told us that, you know, um, David and Sherry and this person and that person live in Wisconsin. Here's something you can send to your friends about what's going on in Wisconsin. So it, it puts a lot of the agency back to the person who has signed up to to participate. But it's, it's a very different animal um, than the Trump app, which is essentially um, a, a data mining operation. Hmm. Um, I, one of the other things you're writing about right now is the effects of Facebook and other social media um, and, and how they have essentially been bad actors in particularly as it relates to election stuff. So bring us up to date on what Facebook is doing. I know they've announced a suspension of political ads just prior to election day, but um, how do we make Facebook less bad as <laughs> part of the election? Wow. Um, there's a question. Um, how do we make it less bad? The problem is that we don't have a lot of control, if any, over Facebook. It's Facebook that has to make decisions about its own uh, responsibilities, uh, which it's unlikely to do, except to the extent that they feel pressure from outside sources. Um, and to some extent that works. Um, it, is, it has worked in the past, but it's always reactive. It's, Facebook doesn't sort of go out of its way to do anything um, to protect democracy or 
um, promote, you know, accurate information um, unless it's, it's pushed to do that. So, I mean, the extent to which anything could change, it will come from um, a kind of public pressure that, that, you know, is the only thing that seems to uh, inspire them to do anything differently than they're doing. Is it helpful that they're no longer going to run political ads in the week before the election? Okay, sure. But, you know, maybe they shouldn't have been running political ads ever um, because we know one of their, um, one of the ways in which they discuss political ads is to say that they really don't have any um, ability or any need to um, moderate those to essentially look at them and decide whether or not they are good actors or bad actors. And so, you know, Facebook political ads have been very, very dangerous because they're very good at um, disseminating information that's untrue. And one of the things that's very dangerous right now is if, let's just say for argument's sake, you know, you put some information in a, in a political ad that's not true, um, that could inf have an impact on how people or where people show up to vote or when they show up to vote, you know, potentially Facebook could say, well, I'm sorry, you know, it's a political ad. We don't, we don't really, um, you know, take responsibility for those. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, um, it's a conundrum because they run these ads. They've decided that they don't have any reason to, um, look at them in terms of their accuracy and then they just go out and circulate and you know then people get bad information and they act on that should we be comforted when we hear the periodic news report that facebook has taken down a thousand web pages of white supremacist groups or russian intelligence front groups is that a sign that they're finally paying attention you know, they are paying attention um, intermittently. But, you know, one of the things that happened with, I, I, I'm, I think this is correct, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but with the Kenosha situation where, you know, the guy came, the young man came with his rifle and he shot a bunch of people. Um, and that was essentially um, a product of some Facebook pages. And, and when Facebook was told that, you know, you know, you allowed these militias to um, proliferate on your platform, they said, oh, well, the problem was that the content moderators were not in this country, were not in the United States. And so they didn't really look at that and understand what it was. So if we're outsourcing content moderation to people whose cultural references are not consistent with ours, we're already in trouble. And, and so, you know, the, it's great that Facebook takes down things that are um, dangerous and that could have an effect on, um, you know, people's lives or effect on our political system. That's all good. When, and we're, you know, we should be applauding that, but it's really a little bit, you know, the finger in the dike kind of problem. Hmm. Um, let's talk a little bit about vote by mail. Um, and a few things come to mind. One is, has the, has Trump's ranting against vote by mail, go, is it going to have the unintended effect of suppressing Republican votes? But the other thing is, 
we seem to be tiptoeing towards this precipice where we're really hoping it's just going to work out that millions upon millions of mailed ballots are going to arrive at places that are accustomed to fielding thousands, not millions. So um, what are your thoughts at this moment on where we stand with vote by mail and what's about to happen? Well, it's interesting. I just read uh, a, a couple hours ago that the Democrats who, who had been kind of promoting vote by mail and mostly because of the pandemic and wanting people to stay safe are now kind of walking that back and, and trying to get people to vote in person. Um, so it's, it's a complicated situation. It, it is possible that the vote by mail uh, rants, which by the way, were you know, just full of disinformation, um, will have an effect on, on Republican voters. Um, only because most, mo the most, uh, most people who vote by mail, and if you had to like break it down between the parties, it was more likely to be a Republican than a Democrat. So to, to the extent that that is true, um, that that could make it more or less likely that you'll have Republicans voting by mail and maybe then not voting at all. I think it's all speculative. We don't know. Um, the problem of uh, election officials having to field thousands of ballots when maybe they only fielded hundreds of uh, mailed-in ballots is is concerning. Um, it's particularly concerning in the states where they won't let those election officials count ballots as they come in, as opposed to waiting to you know November third to start counting them, um, which you know could be a deluge. So that that is somewhat problematic. There are other reasons why it's problematic. And, you know, it's in, a, in bigger um, municipalities, you need high, high speed scanners to get through all of those ballots. And um, it's possible that those municipalities didn't have the funds to get those scanners. So that will slow things down. Um, and then we have this whole other problem, which is um, the slowdown of the Postal Service which means that ballots might not arrive on time. Um, we have some jurisdictions where they have to be postmarked by the right day, but we also have post offices that don't postmark anything. Um, it could be a big mess. Um, and I do think that more people are thinking about voting in person um, than voting by mail now. Uh, they might have been thinking of getting absentee ballots before, but now it's more likely that they're going to vote in person. We see, I saw today, um, long lines in Cayuga County, Ohio, um, where early voting just started and, and the line was, you know, probably a mile too long, mile or too long. It was very, very long. We've seen those lines in Virginia where there's early voting. Um, so, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but, um, but we do know that historically voting by mail is safe and um, we have five states that do it exclusively and do it well. Finally, we've been talking about the potential problems uh, with voting. Um, are there good changes that are going to result from what we've had to do because of the pandemic? I, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that to the extent that more people will vote by mail, um, that 
and if we can get that sort of sorted out in terms of numbers in, you know, in terms of volume rather, and in terms of sort of the, the, the um, equipment that we need to process that, I think that could be a good, uh, potentially a, a good um, outcome. Um, I actually think this is maybe the first election in which so many people are thinking about voting and understanding what voting means and understanding that, that democracy doesn't work unless they participate. And I think, you know, if, if nothing else, and, and that is, you know, an incredibly important place for us to be as a country. I think if that's the outcome of this, then we're going to be in a better place. If not, you know, in a month, then in four years. Okay. Well, Sue Halpern, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Take good care. Sue Halpern is a staff writer for The New Yorker magazine who writes extensively on voting security, and she's a scholar in residence at Middlebury College. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.